Thank you, John, for the kind words, um, very kind words. So every Sabbath in the Walla Walla Valley is a good Sabbath. Graduation Sabbath, I think, particularly good. Bittersweet, bittersweet for those of us that are here and will be left behind, but still a, a very good and happy Sabbath, and welcome to each one of you. I'd like to uh, pray as we continue. Father in heaven, uh, graduation is a, a joyous completion, but it also is a transition for graduates. It's the beginning of something new. I pray that you would bless them in what is yet to come, and I'd also like to thank you for bringing them to this place. Now, Lord, uh, bless all of us as we linger just a bit longer here in your presence. Uh, may our time be well spent, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I begin with a confession. I think it's a relatively safe one. Uh, I am not a good packer. I tried various things to improve that deficiency, but I've, I have trouble hitting the sweet spot of packing prowess. And this is true whether this involves a move across country or even a relatively short uh, trip. Part of the problem is that there's something within me that resists spending money on packing materials. So, when it comes time for our family to move, uh, leading up to that, there's several months uh, which are a, a sort of box hunting season, right? You wouldn't want to, to spend money to buy boxes when if you look hard enough and long enough, you can gather what you will need. Of course, that then means that you end up with a wild assortment of different sized boxes, sometimes with uh, you know, that, that contain products that you would not endorse, um, boxes of varying strength. Uh, it, it makes packing just a bit more challenging. Suitcases, same thing. I, I can't bring myself to buy quality luggage. So I'm one of those in the airport that you see dragging along a carry-on, you know, with the, the wheel that's locked up, leaving. <laughs> leaving a mark uh, behind. My zip, the zippers on the, on the uh, luggage will quickly give out. The telescoping handle, I've watched how it works on other pieces of luggage. <laughs> um, and typically it will last for a, a short time on the luggage that I purchase and then will either, some of you know, right? It's either stuck up or stuck down. The timing of packing is also challenging for me. I've tried starting early, and then I quickly realize that uh, the things that I'm packing are things that I'm going to need between now and the time when I will begin my trip. And I, I don't trust, even if I've created a list, I somehow, right at the last moment, I don't trust that I really put in the things that I thought I did. I forget, did I, did I remember to put that in there? And at the last minute, I end up 
needing to rummage through the suitcase once again just to make sure, confirm that it indeed is there. Frenzied packing. That's sort of the way that I, the way that I handle it. And I'd just as soon not go into a lot of detail about what that <laughs> means. I was thinking about all this uh, as I've been working my way through the first uh, few chapters, really the first 15 or so chapters of the book of Exodus. And there are grand themes here in Exodus. Make no mistake about it. We could talk about lessons of leadership. Moses is a great leader. Certainly, we would need to talk about the power of God in his deliverance of Israel. Grand and glorious themes. This morning, I'd like to begin, at least, by approaching these chapters from a packing perspective. I think this story is probably the most challenging packing and traveling story in all the Bible. And I'm working my way. We'll, we'll work through the kind of the context leading up to our Scripture passage. And as I do so, I'm working my way up towards a question, a question that I think will make a bit more sense with this context. So many of you know the story. Uh, if it's maybe a little hazy in your mind, I'll mention a few parts of the story, of course, skipping over, skipping over much. The Hebrews have been in Egypt for hundreds of years. Some of that time, it hasn't been too bad. But the last few generations have been difficult. The Bible uses words, if you look through these initial chapters of Exodus, they are oppressed. They are worked ruthlessly. Their lives are made bitter with hard, hard labor. They groan in their misery. They cry out to God in their cruel bondage, and God responds. He calls Moses to go back to Egypt, right? And when Moses arrives, he uh, requests of the Pharaoh, let the people go. Let the Israelites, let the Hebrews go. Pharaoh is not interested in that. These are slaves, productive slaves, and he refuses. And then come the plagues, step-by-step step, repeated demonstrations that the Lord is a God that reigns over all things and certainly has power greater than that of any of the Egyptian gods. And then we come now, pick up, picking up the story, right at the time of the tenth plague, certainly the most severe and in many ways tragic that it ever got to this point. The angel of death that passes throughout Egypt, and there is wailing and there is mourning in the land as the firstborn die. The Hebrews have just concluded their Passover meal. They were instructed to eat it in haste. And what I'd like uh, for you to do here is to notice this emphasis as I read from Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 31. Notice the emphasis on the, the, the urgency, the, the hurry, the rush of what follows. During the night, so it's still the middle of the night, Pharaoh summoned, again, Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, 
Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go. And then he tosses in an interesting request. And also bless me. It's interesting. A a kind of acknowledgement somehow, even as he has been resisting, some kind of acknowledgement of Israel's God. Then, verse 33, it's not just the Pharaoh. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. Get the idea of the rush here. We're taking bread. Uh, The troughs would not be wooden troughs, if that's what you think of. They would typically wrap uh, bread in a kind of leather leather, uh, pouch. Uh, In this case, perhaps leather, maybe clothes as well. It's a hurried packing procedure. And if you think I'm emphasizing or overemphasizing this rush, verse 39 says, They ate bread without yeast, and I quote, because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. A challenging and difficult packing situation. I imagine a fair bit of chaos as they left, but joyful chaos because they believe they are now free. The joy is short-lived. Pharaoh changes his mind, and he comes after them with his chariots, his horsemen. And Israel finds themselves then against the sea, the sea behind them, and Pharaoh and his army approaching. Their joy is crushed. They believe they're going to die. And God does something amazing. It's interesting to me that at this time, as God is creating a new people, that the text tells the story in ways that ought to remind us of God's act of creation back in Genesis. And we could spend a long time on this, but just very quickly, Genesis begins with God the Spirit of God hovering or moving over the waters. Then there's the division of light and darkness, day and night, day one. Day two, the water is separated, water above and water below. Day three of creation, dry ground appears. And here in Exodus, we find, again, the same sort of language. All through the night, it says, a wind from the Lord moves over the waters. In Hebrew, the word for breath or wind or spirit Same word. And then there's the division, right? Light to one side for Israel and darkness to the other, to the Egyptians. There's a separation of light and dark. And then the separation of the water. Not water above and water below, but water to the right and water to the left. And something appears in the Exodus, doesn't it? Dry ground appears, and all Israel walks through the sea on dry ground. And Pharaoh, a very poor decision strategically, decides to follow. And that brings us to our Scripture reading for today. 
When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. That's Exodus 15, verses 19 through 21. I said I was leading up to a question, and the time has come. Where did the tambourines come from? And it's not just one or two, right? Reading a couple of different versions of verse 20, the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took her tambourine, and all the women followed her playing tambourines and dancing. All the women playing tambourines and dancing. How many tambourines are we talking about here? (laughs) I've thought of some options. Uh, Where did they come from? Well, Say, maybe there was a store there along the shore of the sea. Tutmos Tackle Tambourine and Timbrel Store, huh? I don't think so. Perhaps the women constructed the tambourine, a frame of wood, either circular or, in Bible times, sometimes triangular, stretched with, uh, overstretched with a piece of leather, some membrane. Perhaps as they were being pursued by Pharaoh, they quickly constructed the tambourines. I don't think so. Some of you here know the Bible well, and you may be thinking to yourself, well, the text says that they plundered the Egyptians. Maybe that's where they got the tambourines from. I don't think that's the answer either. Chapter 3, verse 22 has the clearest instructions And here's what we read there. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles, listen to what they're to ask for, for articles of silver, gold, and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters. The silver is, we read on several occasions, the silver is used during their wilderness Uh, journey to pay for food and water as they travel through the territory of other nations. The gold, of course, is used in the building of the tabernacle. And this mention of clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, suggests to me at least that they were poor, and it may well have been that they had children who did not have adequate clothing for the journey. And before they head out, Make sure they have a pair of sandals and some sort of protective covering. There's no mention there of tambourines. And this is the option then that I'm left with. Could it be that in the midst of their slavery, the Israelites somehow clung to hope? 
They gathered through the years, maybe in Egypt, built tambourines. And more amazing to me even is that somehow in the rush, when they didn't have time even to prepare food for the journey, as they gathered whatever it was they would be taking with them, the women, not just one, not just two, but the women of Israel remembered to pack the tambourines. You don't pack a tambourine unless you expect that there's going to come a day of rejoicing somewhere in the future. So I now come to the part of my sermon, we could call it the application section, and I've kind of moved in that direction already. I have two bits of advice. This is for graduates in particular, but for all of us, for all of us. This is the first appeal, simply this. Graduates, pack a tambourine. I hope you leave this place with many things, a wonderful education, a strong sense of integrity, an understanding that you are called to a needy world to provide service in a needy world. I hope you have a love for God, compassion for people. All of those things I hope you take with you from this place. But don't forget to also pack a tambourine. When you intentionally choose an object of hope that symbolizes hope, like a tambourine, something changes. Something changes. When you expect something good in the future, it actually allows you, doesn't it? It actually allows you to see the good that you might otherwise have missed. And you begin to live. If you're carrying a tambourine, you begin to live in a different way. It was a couple of weeks ago, uh, I took a large foam sword to my world religions class. It's kind of a long story as to why I would do that. Um, we don't have time today. I carried my papers in one hand, and I carried the sword in my right hand. It had a nice handle, felt kind of good in my hand. It is foam, but there was a, it wasn't, a, it wasn't floppy foam, there's actually like skeleton that the foam was around, so it felt, it felt good as I walked. There were some overhanging branches between the ad building and Rigby Hall where class was, and there were some students that I knew that were coming in the other direction. You, you know the temp, you, you can sense the temptation, can't you? When you're carrying a foam sword in your hand, you see things, you recognize opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise recognize. <laughs> and this carries on into so many, into all areas of life, I think. If you carry a stick, you'll see people that deserve a beating. I didn't think you were going to laugh at that one. That's, that's, serious. that's a serious thing. <laughs> but it's true. If you carry a sword, a real sword, you're going to find people to fight. 
you carry tissue all day long, you'll find reasons to cry. And if you carry, I should say, but if you carry a tambourine, you'll find reasons to celebrate. You'll find reasons to rejoice. In his article, it's an op-ed piece in the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof discusses research, recent research, 21,000 people in six different countries trying to figure out poverty intervention programs that seem to work, that have uh, good success. And they've discovered that one of the successful strategies is to supply these needy families with an animal. It's often a cow, a goat, some chickens, even bees. This makes a difference. And we would, of course, think, well, a cow can give milk. That may, if they're poor, maybe that provides nutrition. Uh, we begin to immediately think of the monetary of value. But what the research suggests is that the animals, at least initially, function in a different way. And I think you'll understand it when I say it like this. The animals function very much like the gift of a tambourine. They are gifts of hope. And what happens immediately? The people are still poor. Their problems aren't solved, but with the gift of an animal, it was discovered that they begin to work more hours, unrelated to their livestock. They begin to save more money. They take on additional odd jobs. Their attitude, their mental health improves. When you have a tambourine, life changes. I thought it was interesting in this same article, uh, the, the author suggested that it's, it's wondered, given this study, uh, that, that perhaps religious hope wasn't studied in, in the same way, but perhaps religious hope would have a similar effect, the author wondered. In fact, uh, a line that I love from the article, the author says, if so, if it's the case that religious hope provides this same kind of benefit, if so, and I quote, Marx had the wrong drug in mind. Religion would not be an opiate of the masses, but an amphetamine. I like that. Religious hope stirs something up. It stirs us to action. And so, that first bit of advice, I circle back to it once again. Graduates, people of God, stir up the hope that is within you. Bring along a tambourine. Expect to find good people everywhere. Expect evidence that Satan is getting really desperate because he knows his time is short. Expect to see beauty Expect to see beauty even in this world. Cling. Cling to hope. Hope for your children. Hope for your marriage. Hope for yourself. Pack a tambourine. Pack a tambourine. And my second appeal, very straightforward, don't just pack a tambourine. Use it. Use it. And this is where the message uh, for me begins to cut a, a little close. Uh, I'm a pessimist. I always quickly qualify that, saying, oh, I'm, just, I'm just a realist, but I'm a pessimist. 
I'm a pessimist. Before Kristen and I got married, uh, we went through some premarital tests, uh, kind of a humbling uh, experience. Um, the Taylor Johnson temperament analysis measures some different qualities uh, in a person. And here's what I discovered. Uh, on the expressive, responsive, and inhibited scale, I was extremely inhibited. And then next to that, they have another scale, sympathetic or indifferent. And I was extremely sympathetic, like 98, 99, somewhere up in there. So you, you kind of follow inhibited but sympathetic to people. There's a term, an unpleasant term, that was then applied to me. I am emotionally blocked. I feel things. I feel things, but it's difficult for me to express them, or at least to express them well or accurately. It is a sorrow for me today, also a bit of comfort, to know that in a group this large, I'm not alone. <laughs> and so I ask you now another question or two. Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> How long has it been since you danced in praise and celebration to the rhythm of a tambourine? Danced in praise and celebration to what God has done in your life to the rhythm of a tambourine. In fact, I could say, how long has it been since you danced in celebration and praise to God to the rhythm of anything? How long has it been? I thought um, this week, you know, what if I had stashed somewhere uh, here, maybe in my robe or somewhere, a ta an actual tambourine? And what if at this point, I didn't have the guts to do it, so you can relax, but… <laughs> What if at this moment I were to reach down and pull out a tambourine and say things like, look, God has brought you through, graduates. God brought you here, and He has brought you through. He has equipped you for service. Jesus has promised to prepare a place for us in the Father's house. Jesus has provided a way for every single one of us to be there. And what if, as I said that, I began to move and began to play the tambourine? We wouldn't quite know what to do here, would we? <laughs> we wouldn't know quite what to do. In the face of our stifled joy, in the face of our stifled joy, I would like to remind you again of these women that we read about just a few moments ago. Recent slave women, emancipated, they have seen God act on their behalf in a powerful and mighty way. They didn't have time to prepare food for the journey, but they packed tambourines and they know this is the time. This is the time to use them. They're at the edge of the desert 
Let's not forget this. This is the desert that Moses later described as a vast and dreadful desert, a thirsty and waterless land with venomous snakes and scorpions. That's what lies ahead of them. And they're not going to be perfect as they travel through that desert. Certainly not. But they have experienced the deliverance of the Lord. And they go for their tambourines. And I hope today that somehow we could hear their voices as they sing. Not just one or two of them. The text says all the women. And especially touching to me is to think of some of the older women that must have joined in. Years before, you'll recall, the Pharaoh had ordered baby Hebrew boys are to be thrown into the waters of the Nile. And now the Lord has thrown this Pharaoh into the waters of the sea. There were women there dancing who had lost baby brothers, women who had lost sons. And yet now is their time to sing. I think we should let them sing. We should let them dance. We should let them play the tambourine. And we should pay attention to Miriam's words. Listen to what she sang. It's an invitation not just to them, but to us. She invites us. She says, sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and His rider He has hurled into the sea. O graduates and O church of God, pack a tambourine and let's use them too.